I am uh, so glad to be here this morning. And I have to tell you, uh, what do you go by? You go by Bishop uh, Jacob? <laughs> Bishop Jacob and Bishopess uh, Dawn. I seriously love you guys. And it's really my privilege to be here. Don't you guys just think these are amazing people? <laughs> I, think, I think you can do better than that. I think wild, crazy applause. No, better than that. I want wild, crazy applause for these leaders right here. Why don't you give me, there you go. That's what I'm talking about. I saw the backpack giveaway. I had no idea that all of you uh, who are here today to serve this, have been serving this week, I had no idea you were going to be here. And I walked in and I thought, man, there are so many people here that I would rather hear speak than me. Uh, Pastor Jordan, just phenomenal leader, and his lovely wife, Jacqueline, good to see you guys. And Bishop Ray back there. I feel like we should take a, like one point apiece. And it would be great, and I can just close it up. And of course, you, I listened to your sermon from last week. I'm so glad I didn't have to preach that. That was a tough passage, man. That was, that was rough. If you were here last week and he was telling you about this sin that can't be forgiven, you shouldn't even pray for it, it's going to be better news than that this week. It's going to be good. If you are a visitor here, I will just tell you that you have found the right place, you have found the right family, and the God who has been looking for you is about to find you. Uh, if you're not in the family of God, and I'm delighted that you're here. If this week is horrible, come back next week. It'll be the real pastor, and that'll be great. Um, so yeah, last week was, was tough. Uh, if you want to, what, what was the exact, exact passage? I think it had, there's a sin that leads to death, and if you do that, just don't even pray about it. Like, you're done. You're toast. <laughs> It's like, man, that is brutal. If you are a note taker uh, this morning, you can write down this title, which is really better than don't even pray about that sin because you're messed up. Is that the name of the sermon from last week? Oh, wasn't that all right? The, site, the title of the message this morning is God's love as a real interpersonal experience. God's love as a real interpersonal experience. I know that's a, that's a page turner, tweetable kind of thing right there. But if you can take your Bible and turn to 1 John, and we're going to deal with the beginning and the close of 1 John. We'll be reading 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And then uh, we will be reading 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, and then verse 20. And we're going to tease out just a few things, jump back over to the Gospel of John, and then wind back up in 1 John. And I want to just be honest with you from the very beginning. I'm kind of a nothing-up-my-sleeve person. I'm very straightforward. And I want to tell you what I want to accomplish. I'm driving toward the end of, the, of our time together. The worship crew is going to come back up. And here's what I'm believing for. I'm believing for an absolute miracle in your and in my life. And the miracle that I'm believing for is I'm believing that for you who are the younger generation, that you will experience the love of God in Christ Jesus as a personal experience, not a feeling not something that is momentary, but something where you come into such connection with God that you realize he is a person, not a power, not a principle, but a person who wants to walk with you 
and abide with you. For us, Courage Church, who are here, that we have a life-changing experience with the love of God. And for maybe those of us who say, I don't know anything about God, I'm not really interested in God, I'm just here for my free backpack, I feel like I'm in purgatory right now, who knows what will happen before we get done here this morning. I can tell you my own story, I was at a moment like that, and God just has a way of taking care of business, so we'll see what happens. If you need to leave and use the restroom for the entire service, he can get you in there too. It's entirely possible. So I'm gunning towards that because I believe in miracles. I was preaching at a church not too long ago, and I am not the most spiritual person that you've ever met. How many in here you would say, I am actually not that spiritual? You're just, you're like, you're trying, but you're like that, that dog who needs continually, hey, come on, come on, you need the zap collar? Just continually come back. And uh, so, so when I tell you this story, it's not because I'm just amazing. I'm just amazed that God does it. But I was going, getting ready to go to this church, and uh, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and they asked me if I would come and talk about marriage. I said, that's great. I love talking about marriage and Jesus. That's phenomenal. I would love to come and do that. And we're in worship, and I feel like the Lord says to me, and uh, I'm not one of those people. It's like the Lord says to me everything, but I just felt like this was the Lord. I felt like the Lord said, there's somebody here. Now, this is a church of, there's maybe 80 people there, 100 people there, something like that. I felt like the Lord said, there's somebody Somebody here, your, their marriage is absolutely in crisis. If it's something doesn't happen in two or three days, it's over. And then I feel like I see this lady back here in a green shirt. I felt like the Lord said she's wearing a green shirt. And here's what I said to the Lord. Lord, I'm not saying that. That sounds like a televangelist. So I did not say that. I got up and I said, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, here's just what I feel. I'm getting ready to preach. And I just felt like this is what the Lord said. And I moved on and I preached, right? So I get done preaching. I look over and there's the pastor. And he's standing there with this man and this woman. And the woman is wearing a green shirt, of course she is, and they're ugly crying, snot is everywhere, it's just whatever, all of that is going on. And I said, what is going on over here? Everybody else has left. And they said, you're not going to believe this, but we actually booked a three-day vacation in this town to come here as a last-ditch effort to save our marriage. We were invited to church, showed up here this morning, and Jesus changed our lives. Now, I just believe in miracles, and I believe that he's interested in you. I believe he's interested in me, that he is not far from us, that he is close to us. And who knows what could happen here this morning? Who knows? I mean, I see people in green shirts, so we just don't know. I feel like I should wear a green shirt every time I speak, just in case. So God's love is a real interpersonal experience. Now let me explain just briefly before I read the text why I'm reading the beginning and the end of the letter. If you, uh, if you notice, a lot of the New Testament is made up of things called epistles. Those are letters. And the way ancient letters are written, the opening and the closing part of that letter tell us exactly what's going to happen inside that letter. Nothing else gets to be talked about. So if we really want to know what's going to be happening in the uh, epistle of 1 John, we just read the beginning and the end, and then everything else gets interpreted through there. So it's good for us. I'm going to talk the letter a little bit as a whole for us to just read those two sections. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Why don't we pray and then we'll read that passage. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that you are still the God of miracles, that you're not far off, that you're near us, that you're not hiding, that you're not silent, that your Holy Spirit dwells with us, that you are capable, able, and willing to meet us exactly where we are this morning. We might think we're the furthest person from you. Be worried this church is going to fall down on us because we showed up today. But you're not far from us. We ask you that your presence be clear and obvious to us, Lord. We ask in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Fantastic. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Everyone say heard. heard. Which we have seen. Everybody say seen. seen. With our eyes. Everybody say eyes. 
which we have looked upon, say looked upon, and have touched, say touched, with our hands, say hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was, the fa- which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. Now let me make just a couple of observations. The first is this, is that, and as Pastor Jacob has rightly mentioned, that there is a strong connectivity between the the first epistle of John, which we don't know for sure whether it was written by John or not, was certainly written by someone who's in his theological world, and the gospel of John. There's a strong connectivity there, and we see it in the opening of both of these documents, which will be important for what we want to talk about this morning. In both of the documents, God was from the beginning. John chapter 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, and then it says something very important to us, and that is that from the very beginning, it says the world did not comprehend him. The world couldn't get who God was. They couldn't see him. They couldn't touch him. They couldn't hear. So they were groping around and grasping around going, where is God at in my life? And then it says, Jesus came on this scene, the ultimate articulation of God, and it says, now we have seen his glory. So there's this movement from lack of clarity to clarity. John, the epistle, first one, has the same kind of idea where John says that what was hidden is now made manifest in this time. The God that we were going, where are you, God? Where are you in my life? What do you look like? How are you working? Do you love me? Do you speak? What's going on? And he says, well, let me tell you, I've actually seen him, and I've heard him, and I've touched him. He has been physical and been made known in the real world. He is the real deal, and I can tell you all about him. That is the movement of both of the ideas in the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John. The second is that there is a sense in which we're to understand that Jesus clarifies or makes real and tangible God himself, that he makes him knowable. So that the God who is faithfully followed and worshiped in the Old Testament and under Judaism and experienced now is sort of crystallized and clarified and made obvious and evident in the person of Christ. John's Gospel says we've seen his glory. Now keep in mind it is written to people who are living sort of 50 years after that. So John is looking at a group of people and saying, we've seen his glory, and these people have never seen his glory. Keep that in mind. Our epistle is the same. The author says, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched, and yet these people have never seen or heard or touched. Now, I want you to hold on to that logic for just a second. I want you to imagine with me that Pastor Jacob and Don are going on a three-week vacation to Cozumel, Mexico. How many think they deserve that? I do, too. Should we just take up an offering right now? I have the first And they come back from vacation, and they get up on the Sunday morning, and here's what they say. You guys are not going to believe this. We got off of the plane. We stepped onto our resort at Cozumel, Mexico. We walked into our room, and Jesus was there. Not a vision, not a dream, the real living Jesus. We ate at the all-you-can-eat buffet with Jesus. 
We went to the beach with Jesus. We walked with him. We talked with him. We have more peace than we've ever had, more joy than we've ever had, more purpose than we have ever had in our lives. You guys, it was amazing. How many of you, the very first thought that would go through your mind is, why doesn't Jesus show up to me like that? I know that in recent months, Dawn has been living on, is it bulletproof coffee? I wish that bulletproof coffee, I wish she could drink it and I could get the energy. But you know that's not the way it works, right? She can't wake up in the morning. What do you put in this? Butter? Butter in your coffee? I have no idea what this is about. She puts butter in her coffee, mixes all this up and drinks it. I wish that she could call me and she could say, JP, here's what I just drank. Here's how it tasted. Here's what it was like. And all of a sudden, I could feel the magic wonder of caffeine flowing through my body. But that's not the way that it works, right? You cannot share someone else's sensory experience. I wish that someone else could eat the cheesecake and I could taste it and they could get the calories. I wish it worked that way, but it does not. Now keep that logic with you and imagine that you're one of the people who John is writing to in the gospel and who the writer of the epistle of John is writing to and they're like, guys, you should have been there. It was amazing. I saw him. I touched him. I walked with him. I heard him and all of us are going, but I can't share that experience, right? What about me? I need more faith, do you? I need more joy. I need to believe that God is present in my life. Yet somehow both documents don't have this pessimistic point of view that says because I'm only telling you about it, you can't experience it. They actually both take for granted that because the writer of 1 John and the writer of the Gospel of John are sharing it with you, you are going to have the identical experience. My question is, how is that possible? How is it possible for me to tell you about cheesecake and you to taste it? How is it possible for them to meet Jesus in Cozumel and yet you get the benefit? How is it possible for John to be telling about Jesus and everyone else get the benefit of being with him? How is it possible that the writer of the first epistle to John says, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him, and you to get the benefit? How does that happen? We see this optimism at the end of the first epistle of John as well. First John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 says, I write these things to you who to believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, not that you might think, not that you might hope, not that you might kind of maybe someday think something might happen, but you may know that you have eternal life right now. In fact, you have a confidence toward him that if you ask, again with the sensory thing, that if you ask, you talk to him, he will hear you. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we will ask of him in 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him. But how can I know him? I did not hear him. I did not touch him. I did not see him. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. You know, I think we suffer from this quite a bit, this feeling that somehow we're dislocated from God, don't we? That he's up there and I'm down here. 
because we don't have our author's experience of hearing and seeing and touching, that we're down here stuck in this mess. And we say, but I, I, I know I should have hope because we're Christians. We should have hope, right? But yet, if we're honest, if we're laying down on our bed at night and we wake up in the morning, hope is absent from us and it's fleeting. And we say, I know that I'm loved by God, but yet we're behaving like we need love from everything else. There's somehow there's a disconnect where we really do kind of fundamentally believe, if I can use John's gospel's language, that we are God's orphans, that we're as stragglers, that we're as left behinds, his hinds, his forgotten, his neglected ones. You're that long lost nephew that he doesn't know your name. He becomes the God at a distance. He's the absent father long past due on child support, not making weekend visits who doesn't show up for our games. It can begin to feel that way. I've been thinking about my own childhood lately. I have a uh, just turned 10 year old, 13 year old, and a 15 year old boy, and my house smells like it. <laughs> That's the way that goes. And uh, so eternally grateful that my children inherited their mother's DNA and not mine. They're 100% hers, I think. And um, I don't know what your growing up was like. Um, I was a, a problem child. They actually had prayer meetings, the deacons at the church I grew up in, specifically for me. <laughs> it's a true story. My dad was on the board, and when he would, he would discipline me, he would say, so, you know, please, this is not good parenting. My dad's an awesome parent, and this was not his finest moment. This is like spiritual manipulation. Son, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to have to quit the board. That was, that was, it was like, it's like, look, man, I, got, I can't go into one more board meeting where you are on the prayer list, okay? You're going to have to straighten up. But I just was always kind of a troubled kid a little bit. It started when I was probably four. I had this just kind of wild, crazy imagination. And even when you were a little kid and you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you were absolutely sure that, like, the sewer dragon was going to come out of the toilet and kill you. Any of you have that? So I had a solution for that at four years old. Instead of going to the bathroom in the middle of the night, I would crawl in my brother's bed and pee on his bed. That's the way that that worked. And it's probably why he knocked both of my teeth out with a hockey glove. That was, we had that kind of love and relationship for each other. I just was always sort of, I don't know, getting in trouble. And um, you'd think maybe at, at church I might know how to get on. Anybody in here like uh, Royal Rangers or, or Boy Scouts or anything like that? Anything where you get badges? So I was a member of, of Royal Rangers for a very short amount of time, um, a limited time. How many know there are two kinds of people in life? They're the kinds of people that when you tell them, when you say, everybody put on your matching T-shirts, they're like, yeah! And then there's the other kind of people who are like, put on your matching T-shirts, and they're like, death first. You know, I'm not going to conform. Like the nonconformist, right? I was the nonconformist guy. So you'd show up to Royal Rangers, and every week you were supposed to wear this red shirt that had a collar on it. It wasn't my color anyway. And, um, and then a bolo tie to top it off. So that way you could just be humiliated all the way there. And um, every week I would show up and all these kids have their red shirts on and their bolo ties. And I'm the only guy, the deacon's kid, who does not have my red shirt and bolo tie on. And every week they would like, I don't know, I'd lose points or something. I never understood what all that meant. And I would, whatever. And then I, I just really wasn't all that into it. And then one day I realized that if you got far enough along, they gave you these like silver and brass and gold badges. And they were cool things like knives and fire and guns. I mean, I'm like a nine-year-old boy. This is my love language, bright, shiny things that kill people. That's my love language. And so I'm like, hey, you know, um, what do I have to do to get the badges? 
And he's like, well, the first thing you got to do is wear your shirt. And I was like, I knew you were going to say that. And he gives me this list of things to do. So I literally, instead of doing all that, I broke into the Royal Ranger room late at night, jimmied the lot, stole all the awards. Now, here was where everything went bad. I know you think it went bad before. I showed up next week in my red shirt with my bolo tie with every award you could ever possibly win in Royal Rangers pinned to my chest like I'm a four-star stinking general. They pulled me aside and they said, JP, we just don't think this program is for you. I was like ceremonially defrocked from the Royal Rangers, banned for life. This is the sort of the way it worked. Then I turned 13 years old. 13 was a rough year for me. Um, I had a best friend who lived in Grand Haven on Lake Michigan. I lived a little ways up from that. And I got a ticket for jaywalking. Did you know they actually gave tickets for jaywalking? At the place where I lived, there were all these little junior high hoodlums, of whom I was one, that were walking down the middle of the street, and he came and he gave me a ticket, and um, his name was Officer Campbell. I met him again when I was 16. Um, <laughs> we have an ongoing relationship. And uh, when I was 13 years old, he said, he said, son, I'm going to need your name. And I looked at him, and I went, Jay, wait a minute. I am a 13-year-old kid. I don't even have ID. This guy's not going to know if I give him somebody else's name. So I gave him the name of my best friend who lived in Grand Haven and address. Now, I really have to applaud the Norton Shores Police Department. They are more committed than I thought they were. I thought for sure they would just be like, well, he's not paying. I don't see this guy. He doesn't even go to the school. We'll just leave it alone. They showed up at my best friend's front door. My best friend comes to the door, and he goes, are you J.P. Dorsey? He says, no. And he says, I think that someone may have given us your name. And uh, the police officer looks at my friend and he says, can you think of anyone who might have given us your, or he said, are you, his name is Greg Wilkes actually. He said, are you Greg Wilkes? And he said, can you think of anyone who might have given us your name and address? And my friend responded, I can only think of one person. It was only about 20 minutes before the police were knocking on my door. That's just the way that my growing up was. And uh, I didn't become a Christian until I was 19 years old. And you would just sort of in that environment think that maybe my parents would stop loving me, which I wouldn't have blamed them. And, uh, but they didn't. And I, I tell you stories that are funny, but there's also lots of painful stuff in there. And there's lots of difficult stuff in there that caused real pain for my parents. But what's funny, my mother is a psychologist, and um, if any of you have a psychologist in your family, you know what it's like. Um, my, I would get in trouble, and my mom would sit me down on the couch and talk to me for two hours and then charge me 85 bucks an hour. <laughs> and you're like, just beat me. You know, just please beat me. But she wouldn't. She would just lecture. And um, my mother still asks me these questions to this day. She'll say things like, JP, what's your abiding memory of growing up? Like, what's the one thing you remember? And... Um, I always ask her, aside from the time that I was bleeding out in the middle of the night and you told me to go back to bed, that's just to keep her humble. Um, I say, you know, and this is weird, and I say this because I think probably each of us have something like this. It might be a smell of something that our parent cooked. It might be a particular experience of of watching football games and being close with the family. The thing that I remember, and I remember it vividly, I remember the feelings I had from the time of about five or six years old all the way up to 13 or 14 years old. What I remember is my parents would, uh, we would go to Florida every year. We had a K car with no air conditioning and, uh, and three teenage boys. And I uh, would sit in the back seat on the pleather and melt to the pleather. 
And we would drive down there. My dad would make it in 19 hours. You had to put on diapers because he wasn't stopping. And we would go down there, and we would go to Disney. Is it Disney World or Land in Florida? Which one is it? World? Okay, there you go. And uh, we would go to Disney World, you know, like my dad would sell a kidney or whatever he had to do to get us in there. And um, then we would stay in this hotel, and we would come home. So my parents, by this time, you know, they've spent like thousands of dollars, right, doing this trip. And literally the only thing I remember about that trip is every year we would come home and um, I would be sleeping. It would be the middle of the night because we would have left early in the morning. We'd get home like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And um, I remember that we lived off exit 1A. And have you ever had this experience where you're driving, when you're a little kid, you're driving home and you're asleep, but when you get close to your house, your body knows that you're getting close to your house and you wake up? I find this actually a pretty common thing for, for kids. About exit three, my body would wake up, and I would lay in the back seat. I remember my dad would get off exit 1A. He'd go by the two hotels. Are you going to preach the rest of my sermon? Making me nervous back there. You got some more notes for me? Don't mind the man behind the flannel. Okay. <laughs> we'd get off the exit 1A. We'd go by the two hotels. We'd go over the, the sort of hill and over the railroad tracks, come up the hill, go right, and turn left and pull into our driveway and I can remember the sound of the garage door going up and coming down and every year my uh, father, sometimes my mother when I was younger, I would pretend to be asleep because that was the one time, I was always getting yelled at, always getting in trouble for good reason. But that was the one time a year I would pretend to be asleep, my mom or dad would get in the back seat, they'd pick me up, they'd carry me into the house, they'd tuck me into the bed and they would say, why you little award-stealing, bed-peeing, <laughs> false identification, perjurizing <laughs> kid, I love you, bud. And they'd leave me. I pretended to be asleep until I was 10, 11, 12 years old every year to repeat that experience. So because there's nothing that will take the place of a physical experience of being loved. It's memorable to us. It impacts us. And yet, Jesus, for both the epistles and for the gospel writer, Jesus is gone. There's no physical experience to be had. So the question is, how then do we experience God? And I want to suggest, and I'm going to read one little passage, and then I'll give you three ideas, and we'll move quickly. The passage that I want to hearken you back to is John chapter 14, where Jesus says this, I will not leave you orphans. If you're like me, as we've already hinted at, the passage in John, John's epistle, it just makes me ask this question. So if Jesus is physically gone, like, how do I stay connected to the Father in a way that's real and tactile? How do I do that? You're going to be playing for a long time, bro. I still got like four hours left. No, I, I got a little while yet. What's that? That's okay. It's no problem. Unless you want to play the whole time, I don't mind. I don't mind at all. I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't communicate clearly. I'm sorry about that. If you want to, it's okay, though. Would you rather have him playing? Would it be good? I don't care. Okay, we do a little picking. I could sing my message. We, none of us want that. So let me make three just brief observations uh, this morning. The first is that Jesus knew that you and I would sometimes feel like we're separated from God, like we are 
orphaned from God, like we're not physically connected to God. He knew that because there would be this sort of physical absence between us. Anybody who's ever experienced the loss of a loved one knows what it's like. You, you feel like they should be there. You wake up and wonder where they are. You get wafts of a cologne or a food that reminds you of them, and you feel like they should walk around the corner, and yet you don't. The fact is, is that we are sense-driven people. Your brain fires about three billion times per second. Two billion of those firings are to process what you see with your eyes. So the, just the fact that Jesus can't be seen by you, your brain goes, I don't understand. That's a disconnect for me. Like, why? where is he? How do I relate to him? How do I connect to him? Yet Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. John says, have fellowship with us. Come be with us, even though you can't see him. You can't hear him. You can't touch him. How can only imagine, I mean, how many of you have thought how much easier, you thought, my faith journey would be easier if Jesus was here in the flesh and woke up in the morning and he was sort of just staring at me like, hey, ready to roll? I mean, it would be a little creepy, but once you got over that, we're physical people. And John records this, the idea that we're not being left orphans, and John in the epistle says to us and invites us to real fellowship with God, not as some sort of historical curiosity, but because people are really struggling with an invisible God. They're wondering where he is in their life, and we too have the temptation to share in that struggle today, feeling as though Jesus has already come, and he's yet to come, but yet we're just kind of stuck right here in the middle, as though God is just sort of coming in the future. It's no wonder we sometimes feel like God isn't close to us. We feel also, I think, sometimes orphaned when we suffer and we feel and wonder where God is. We shouldn't forget that uh, Jesus' friends have been through an incredible ordeal watching Christ die. Uh, It gets kind of sanctified when we read it in text, but if you can imagine the rough equivalent of someone you know and love being kidnapped and being tortured and the video being sent to you to watch for yourself. It would be the rough equivalent. If that happened to you today, we would expect that you would need counseling and you would need care and you would need support. What's the question that people ask when when they're going through suffering? Why is this happening to me, right? And you know what that is? That's really another way of asking a different question that we're afraid to ask because we're Christians, which is where in the wide world of sports is God, right? Why is this happening to me? The subtext of that question is, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Where is he in this mess and in this mix? I remember not too long ago, I was speaking at a Christian school, and um, they asked me to come, and they said, you can speak about anything you want. I said, cool, I'll talk about sex. They said, anything but that. I said, okay, great. I would like to talk about marriage, and they said, that's fine. So I went and talked about sex and marriage. I did do what I was told. And uh, I'm, I'm sharing, and this is just sort of a like classroom session. It's not like a church service. And uh, I'm sharing, and I remember I, I said something like, because it's, you know, Christian schools are all different. This is one where there are a lot of kids there that the parents are just like, we have no idea what to do with this, what to do with this kid. You take him. That, there are a lot of those kids there. So I'm just like, you know, look, I don't know your story. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus or if you just like, you know, you hate the church or if you just love Jesus. I don't know any of your story. And uh, just, kind of, just kind of prayed for him at the end. Everybody leaves the room, and this 14-year-old young lady comes up to me. And um, beautiful young lady, and she's just, like, staring me down. She's, like, daring me to, like, break eye contact with her. And um, I, I said, you know, is there something I can do for you? She goes, yeah. I said, what? She goes, I'm one of those. I said, one of what? I just got done talking about sex and atheists. Which one? 
And uh, she said, I don't believe in God. I said, really? Okay. You stayed after, can I ask you a question? You stayed after to tell me why. Like, everyone else is gone. You don't know me, yet you stayed after class to come and tell me, defiantly, I might add. <laughs> I'm one of those. I don't believe in God. And she said, you know, I'll tell you why I don't believe in God. I was thinking, I figured you might. She said, because for about four to five years, I was raped repeatedly by a family member. And every single time that family member came to my house, I said, dear God, make it stop. And he didn't make it stop. So I don't believe in God. See, there's a very deep connectivity between how we wrestle with our suffering and whether we feel God is connected to us in our lives. Where is God in the midst of that? So we can feel separated from God, both because we suffer. Maybe ours hasn't been that dramatic. Maybe we just have, see the pain that's in the world. We see the financial struggle there is. Maybe we see disease. Maybe we see things in our own personal family. We don't see God with our physical eyes. It makes it hard to believe. The second observation I always make is this, is that Jesus knows that feeling orphaned has real emotional and behavioral impact on us. Now, it's my contention this morning, because I think, there are, I know there are a bunch of us in here that are awesome young people, that we love Jesus, we signed up for this trip to come and serve and come and love, and that's awesome. But my contention is, is that sometimes our profession can be a little bit more robust than our experience. That what we say we have experienced with God maybe doesn't actually sometimes flesh itself out in daily life. And so what I think we ought to do is we ought to ask ourselves, well, maybe if I know what happens when people feel abandoned and feel left and feel like they have been orphaned, how do they respond? And if I'm responding that way, it lets me know perhaps I'm living a little bit more like God has abandoned me than I might be aware of. Look at this. I want to show you something I think you'll find interesting. The behavior of Jesus' disciples after he dies and is buried, they are abandoned. I want to show you four things they experience. The first is this. They experience fear and anxiety. John chapter 20, verse 19 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. These are the same guys who just chapters earlier, when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm probably going to die. Thomas, doubting Thomas, remember him? He says to him, Let's go, boys. And they're going to go die with Jesus. Now they are hunkered down in a room, door locked. Why? Because they have been abandoned. They are experiencing fear and anxiety. Second thing they experience is a loss of ambition and enthusiasm about their future. In John chapter 21, verses 1 through 3a, I think one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. It says, after this, now keep in mind, this, this after this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. So Jesus has died, and he's been raised from the dead, and Peter has seen him. But Peter still hasn't gotten over the trauma of not understanding what's going on with Jesus. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them what I think are almost the saddest words in all of Scripture. Remember, this is the same Peter that chapters earlier says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're right, and on your confession, I will build my church. My church. 
same Peter here that's going, let's go fishing, boys. Loss of ambition and enthusiasm. The third is emotional isolation from others. John chapter 21, Peter's abandoned his calling for fishing. Not there's anything wrong with fishing, but he has a different call in his life. Jesus appears, and we see Peter's conflicted relationship with Christ. When he is fishing, he realizes Jesus is on the shore. He leaps out of the boat because he's desperate for relationship with Jesus, right? But then he gets up to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and those of us who have read Scripture much at all, we know this passage. Jesus looks at him, he's like, Peter, he's trying to restore Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Now, how many of you have somebody in your life, or you are that person, that you do not like displaying your emotions to other people? Don't raise your hand, because I'll expect to see you at the response. A lack of willingness to be open and transparent in relationships is a sign that we don't feel safe. We all want to be known, but when we think the risks of being known outweigh the benefits, we choose to stay inside. And watch what Peter does. Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? He goes, yeah, I love you. You know what that's sign for? Stop, don't go any further. You know I love you. No, 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 no. Peter, second time, do you love me? Jesus, stop pushing. You know I love you. You died. You went away. You hurt me. I told you everything was okay. I love you. And then a third time, Jesus looks at me and says, Peter, let's cut the garbage. You know what I'm really asking. Like, do you love me? Are we good? Have you been reconciled? I know you were disappointed. I knew you were hurt. But have you been reconciled? The fourth thing we see is anger. In Matthew's account, verse 26, or chapter 26, Peter is denying he knew Christ, and Matthew tells us that Peter actually invoked a curse on himself. He had to use the naughty word jar. Grew angry and began swearing. Actually, glad those aren't quoted in the Bible. That'd be awkward, wouldn't it? So pay attention to that list. Fear and anxiety, loss of ambition and enthusiasm, emotional isolation from others, and anger. Now listen to this. Check this out. Dr. Schoenfelder, Sandler, Wolchick, and McKinnon. If that doesn't sound legit, I don't know what does. Published a study in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence entitled, this is a page turner, The Quality of Social Relationships and the Development of Depression in Parentally Bereaved Youth. And the study dealt with the effects experienced by adolescents who had been abandoned by their parents. The four doctors concluded that the four most enduring symptoms of abandonment are a fear of future loss with a significant increase over the general population in anxiety attacks, depression and hopelessness, less entrepreneurs, less college graduates, more treatment for clinical depression, difficulty in forming meaningful relationships with lower rates of marriage and higher rates of divorce for those who did marry, and anger more cases of domestic and child abuse in the households they ran. So the challenge is this. If we're experiencing a lack of enthusiasm and passion and vision about our future, if we're experiencing anger, if we're experiencing anxiety about having close relationships with other people, it is a sign that we are living in an orphaned state. Let me show you this image of the brain real quick. Can you pop that up for me? Sweet. So prefrontal cortex uh, is the part of the brain that controls executive thinking. It doesn't develop in guys till about 25 years old. It's the ability, it's actually true. Um, so don't marry a guy under 25 years old, he's still not done. Um, if you do, it, he's going to get better, I promise. 
Um, prefrontal cortex is executive decision-making, long-term planning, but it's also the thing that gives you, allows you to have a long-term relationship with somebody because it maps out the history of that relationship and the possibility of future relationship with that person. It's what makes you faithful and committed in a relationship. Now that actually, when the amygdala, which is that little red part in the center there, that is where your fight or flight comes from. So if you get in a fight and you decide you either want to run away or you want to get angry and you start yelling and running away at the same time, whatever it is you do, however you cope, when the amygdala turns on, it turns off the prefrontal cortex, and you're now not able to do any long-term planning and thinking. The problem is, is that when a child is abandoned, or in trauma, or even when we as adults, it gets turned off, when that prefrontal cortex gets turned off because the amygdala is turned on, we are now no longer able to build long-term relationships. It's not a possibility for us. We're responding out of the amygdala. The hippocampus is what allows us to process meaningful moments. It's what allows us to feel close to another person. It releases important hormones into the brain that allow you to feel a sense of closeness, commitment, longevity, like we're in this together. That kind of feeling you have when you have a powerful experience with someone and you pull them close and you're like, and you, wanna, you know that feeling where you want to pull the person like right into you? You're like, we're in this together. You know, the band of brothers. That's what helps you, helps you kind of experience that. And that as well gets turned off when the amygdala gets stimulated. And when we're in a situation where we are continually wondering, are we okay? Is everything going to be all right? Am I safe? Am I provided for? That amygdala is firing 24-7, and we're not able to develop that sort of long-term abiding relationship with God. In fact, our relationship with God will be defined by crisis. God, you gotta come through now. God, I need you. God, you gotta come through. Instead of abiding, instead of faithfulness, instead of a long-term relationship. You pull up that next slide for me. This is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, if you've ever taken a, a basic psychology class, it's not, probably nothing new to you. And all it basically says is, is until you have one level of need met, you probably are going to have a hard time thinking about the other. In practical terms, if you're here this morning and you didn't eat breakfast, you're not hearing a clue I'm saying, you're just waiting for the tamales. I get it. And it basically says if you don't have air, water, food, shelter, sleep, and clothing, and you're not able to reproduce, which is a very strong human urge, that you actually are willing to sacrifice that next level, personal security and resources to get that. And we see that. If someone gets hungry enough, they will drink, or thirsty enough, they will drink water that they think is going to make them sick. Because at some point, the potential of life is worth more than the risk. You move up that scale, and we basically see that we have the needs for air, water, food, shelter, then we have personal security, employment, and then you get up to things like friendship, and that's because those bottom two are controlled by the amygdala. If we do not have those things, our amygdala is firing over and over and over again. Now, this is not a question, this is not meant to be a trick question. What are the two primary responsibilities that we often say that the dad is responsible for? Protection and provision, which is those bottom two and when you don't have those, you end up feeling like an orphan. So what does that say? It says this, that if our relationship with God is not one that genuinely makes us feel provided for and protected on a daily, ongoing basis, it is no wonder that we're having the kind of emotional responses we're having to life. John, in John's epistle, the reason he needs them to be anchored in an actual, real, tactile, legitimate fellowship with God that is a real relationship is because it provides the center for everything else he wants to accomplish. In chapter 1, he tells us that if we have fellowship with God, that's such a bible word. It just means if you know God like you would know a person and spend time with him in the way that you would spend time with a person, that he's impacting you that way. 
If you have that, you will not walk in darkness. It's just that simple because you don't need to. You don't need to go looking for the next buzz if you've already got fulfillment in Christ. You don't need to go looking for provision in illicit ways if you know you're already in touch with the provider. You just don't do it. One takes care of the other. Right? Chapter 2, they will love each other because they know him. Remember we read orphans can't be in committed relationships. He says if you get full of the genuine love of God, not as an experience, but as a relationship. You'll have good relationships in the community of faith. Later in chapter 2, they won't have pride and materialism because the love of the Father is in them. They won't feel like they have to be seeking after material goods because they're provided for. They won't have to be desperate for love because they're already loved. Chapter 3, it says they won't be condemned. A sense that they can't be right with God won't happen because they already have proof in their real relationship that that's not the case. And all of that hinges, though, on us having a real, tactile, tangible experience that, if I can say it this way, de-orphans us, adopts us, in the words of Romans. Third point I'll make is this, and we'll wind up. That God's love as an interpersonal experience is absolutely accessible to every single person here through the Holy Spirit. He says in chapter 14, back in John, I won't leave you as orphans. We read that. And he continues on in verses 16 and 17. Here's the answer, right? Cozumel, we can't have their experience. Bulletproof coffee, can't have it. I got to eat my own cheesecake and go to the gym just like everybody else. Or just eat my cheesecake and not go to the gym, which is what I do. But John argues, actually, you don't have to see Jesus. You don't have to hear the physical Jesus. You don't have to touch Jesus. And here's why he can argue that. In verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 14, and I will ask the Father, and he's actually going to give you another helper just like me, a comforter, a counselor, an advocate, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John's epistle closes similarly. John chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Two things I'd say to you, and come on up. Got it nailed it this time. It's great. I should have had a signal, something subtle. <laughs> Two things I'd like to say. The first is that the love of Jesus is available to you and I as a real, ongoing, personal experience. And the case that I need to make to you is that a, 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 an experience that we have emotionally can be equivalent to a sensorial experience. And let me explain it this way. If I were to say to you, I am here. You would say, well, that is true. I see you. I hear you. You've been yammering on for 40 minutes now. If you got close enough, you might even be able to smell me. I don't know. Did have a cup of coffee. But if I were to say to you, this room is slowly filling with carbon monoxide. Odorless, death-inducing carbon monoxide. Some of us would be like, ha, 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 that's funny. Others of us, we've been watching too much news. We would believe it's true and run out the back door. 
but we wouldn't be quite sure. But then all of a sudden, people around us, they start getting lightheaded, and they start dropping to the floor, and we start getting lightheaded, and we start dropping to the floor. All of a sudden, we're feeling pretty certain by experience that what I have said is true. You can't see Jesus. Now, might you have a vision of Jesus? Sure. You can't hear Jesus most of the time, unless you're one of those people that Jesus is talking to audibly all the time. Uh, I'm not one of those people. You can't touch Jesus. But the case that John and the writer of the epistle makes is that the Holy Spirit is so real that the experience of relationship that he wants to give us through fellowship with the Spirit is so real that it is equivalent or better than walking with a physical Christ. That he loves us that much. The second thing that I would like to say to you and we'll wind up is that the Father has not and will not ever abandon you. His desire is for you just like he desired the lady in the green shirt even though I was a disobedient servant and refused to say green shirt. He desires you. My favorite stories so, told by Ernest Hemingway, the great American author, and he tells the story of a young man named Paco. And Paco, like a lot of young men, got into a fight with his dad. And just like the prodigal son, he said, Dad, that's it. I've had enough of your rules. Had enough of your button into my life, trying to tell me what to do. I'm out of here. I'm going to Madrid, going to the big city, going to make a name for myself. In the story, he's going to be a bullfighter. I mean, if you're going to go, go big, right? He goes to the city, and of course, he doesn't become a bullfighter. He struggles, and he, he becomes poor, and he's living in a small, rundown area, struggling. And the father can't ever find his son, and his son is literally hiding from his father because he's ashamed. He spent every dime he took from his dad. He didn't accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. And the father's desperate. He has flyers drawn up. They're nailed all over the city of Madrid. Looking for my son, Paco. If you see him, tell him. His father misses him. All is forgiven. Just please come home. Finally, he gets desperate. Takes out a newspaper ad in El Liberal, the main Madrid newspaper. Right in the personals, buys the biggest print he can says, and it says, answering the call of the name Paco, please meet me at the Hotel El Matador on Tuesday at 9 a.m. I love you. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. The thing that kills me about that story, and it makes me feel so, it feels so pertinent to our time is that the father shows up. He gets up in the morning. He gets dressed. He's anxious. He's got that butterflies in his stomach. Is my son going to show up? Is he not going to show up? I've done everything that I can do to find him. Is he going to be there? And he gets ready to go to the hotel. And horror of horrors, he cannot get to the hotel. The streets are lined with police. They're, all the roads are shut down. And he finally manages to get there. He says, what is going on? Has something happened? By the time he gets to the hotel, he realizes that there are 800 young men named Paco, waiting at the hotel. 
just to be reconciled to their father. The father is not hiding from you. And I don't know if you're here this morning and you're here, you, you were a part of the outreach this weekend, you just showed up, that's awesome. I know they're privileged that you are here. Whether you've been in church your whole life and you have relationship with Jesus, but when you look inside, you're like, I have some of those symptoms. I'm going to pray. They're going to lead us in worship for a moment. And just like I said, I'm going to believe for a miracle. That Jesus, in a way that is even better than the physical, is going to make himself real to us through his spirit.